Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station podcast, a show about learning the Rust programming language. This is Interview 2, Part 1, with Rafe Levine. So hi, Rafe. Welcome to New Rust Station. It's good to have you here. Hi, Chris. Uh, it's good to be here. Thanks for asking me on. Absolutely. So for listeners, Rafe is an employee at Google, and we'll talk a little bit about that, though not nearly as much as other rusty things going forward. He's also the author of a fun Rust-based implementation of Markdown, one of the many, and also of the currently in-development Xi editor, which has a Rust backend and some native frontend. So we'll talk about all of those things. Looking forward to it. I thought we'd start just by getting a little little background on you. How did you end up in software and kind of what are some of the things you've done over the last however long that you have been in software? Well, it's been it's been a long time. I've actually, <laughs> uh, I got my first computer when I was uh, six years old. It was a little... RCA Cosmac VIP. Nice. Second computer was a Kim 1 6502 based, which is a little bit more familiar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so my experience in, in writing software goes way back. And um, I mean, we'll, we'll touch on, uh, you know, a couple of things. Um, I, you know, I, I did my uh, graduate studies at UC Berkeley and I did a master's degree on static memory management for ML, basically huh. looking at the ML kit work uh, and uh, trying to, which, you know, which uses regions to kind of group the memory so that it doesn't all have to be garbage collected. Gotcha. And so, so my advisor, Alex Aiken, and I looked at how can we refine this? How can we do things like uh, in a tail recursion, you might have temporaries that are used in the body. So they don't go out of scope until right. the tail recursion is complete, but you can drop them before you actually go to the tail recursion. Hmm. Uh, so that was really interesting work. I, I sometimes I joke that I've been programming Rust for twenty years because that's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a very strong you know antecedent to the to the Rust work. But we couldn't really make that work. Um, and I think there were there are a couple of things that um, the pretty much the main thing is that we were missing move semantics. You know, we didn't have yeah. this concept where something could actually take ownership from a caller, um, you know, that you had, you know, temporary is no problem. But, you know, move semantics really is the key that I think right. unlocked the ability to, to do memory management where you don't need a garbage collector. So ML always had ML kit always had a garbage collector as a backfill. And when you mix, you know, static memory management and garbage collector it really doesn't work as well as going kind of all in on one or all in on the other. Right. So it was really exciting, you know, when I saw Rust, you know, it's like this is this is a way to kind of, <laughs> you know, fix some of the problems that we couldn't overcome in the in the um, in my master's work and make something that you can really use. Right. So that's kind of rewinding and fast forwarding. You know, since then, um, I've been involved in a number of open source projects. I did some, uh, I did a little bit of work on GIMP um, hmm. and, um, you know, some of the work on GTK, some of the low level stuff, the image processing uh, layers uh, in the GTK stack. That was over 20 years ago. Well, around 20 years ago, uh, you know, kind of professionally, I went from there to uh, working on GhostScript, where I was pretty much the lead maintainer on that for about nine years. And then I went uh, from there to Google, where I've really worked on three things at Google. I've worked on spam filtering, uh, which is uh, not open source. And then uh, after that, I worked on the uh, Google Web Fonts, Google Fonts Project, hmm. which is a, 
very strongly open source. Mm-hmm. You know, the actual server itself is not open source, but a lot of the tools we use to slice and dice fonts are, and the fonts themselves are. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's a large library of open source fonts in, in many different scripts now. And uh, so I'm really proud I've made of made good use of those at times. I appreciate that work a lot. It's it's pretty popular. It's, yeah. uh, I forget the numbers, but it's, you know, it's billions of fonts served per day. It's, uh, you know, pretty, pretty strong mm-hmm. impact on the web. Uh, and then for the last uh, little bit more than four years, uh, I've been on Android. And um, basically, my work there is uh, fonts, font rendering, text, text layout, text mm. editing to some extent, um, you know, pretty much, uh, pretty much the text stack on Android. So uh, one of my interests uh, in Rust today is kind of writing prototypes of things, you know, of checking things out, you know, Mm -hmm. seeing whether this is a a tool, whether this is a language that can really be used to build real things. And so I've released a couple of those. Uh, I wrote a little font renderer, which is not widely known. It's font-rs, if anybody wants to, to take a look. And uh, so the performance of font, uh, it's, it's very underfeatured. It's, it's, you know, it's just a basic renderer for true type fonts, but the performance actually exceeds that of free type, hmm. um, which is, you know, the, the kind of the, the standard. standard. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's certainly proof that Rust is capable of um, very high performance code. And that was also part of my motivation when I wrote pull down CMark, which is the markdown implementation that you mentioned earlier. And my goal was to write the fastest markdown implementation. <laughs> I, I don't think it is. There are some people who have done some kind of crazy yes. optimization work on the C ones. And I kind of wanted to preserve a, you know, reasonable structure of the code, you know, mm-hmm. make it so that it's maintainable and, and, and easy to understand. And if you look at the C implementations, they do like they write their own pool allocators and, and do some kind <laughs> of extreme things. So, you know, pull down CMark is within striking range of the performance of those. But, you know, I'd like to think is, you know, written at a much higher level, much, yeah. much, uh, much easier to work with. Yeah, I found it readable and I've tried to read the implementations of the others. And even as a relatively experienced C developer, I spent the first five, six years of my career writing primarily C, I was just looking at it saying, what are, what is going on here? I could read pull down C mark. So I think you achieved your goal there and I appreciated it. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, C really does force you. C allows this amazing performance, but the the downside is, you know, maintainability of the code and of course, safety. Right. And, and this is a really major concern. And this is, this is something, you know, in my work on Android, you know, we take security very seriously. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, you know, we do a lot of work. We do uh, fuzz testing um, and we have uh, we use the um, sanitizers, the address sanitizer and so on yeah. and so forth. And, you know, it we uncover a lot of problems. <laughs> and actually, one of the uh, interesting things we use a lot of open source, you know, like free type, for example, that's mm-hmm. in production on Android and other libraries like Harfuzz and ICU. And one of the things we find in, in C, C++, is that there's like, it seems like half of the language definition is what's undefined undefined behavior. behavior. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I really want a t-shirt that says, with undefined behavior, anything is possible. Yeah. I've commented to friends a couple times that when I was writing production C full-time, I literally never went more than about a week before discovering some edge case that I didn't know, some new quirk in how compilers implement things differently. And it consistently, six years, I never went more than a week, often not more than a couple days. 
days before bumping into one of those. So yeah, there's a lot. And a lot of what we see is we have code that was written kind of in a different era with different assumptions, mm-hmm. you know, where you can kind of uh, decrement a number and expect it to not just go into undefined behavior <laughs> and, you know, maybe, you know, assume it wraps because that's what all sane implementations do. And then mm-hmm. these days that is not acceptable and it actually leads to, to serious problems. So when I'm writing C and C++ code, I always kind of have this feeling like, how many security vulnerabilities am I introducing (laughs) by writing this code? And when I'm writing Rust, it's the exact opposite. And, uh, you know, I'll jump forward a little bit um, to to the Xyeditor project. And kind of the heart of Xyeditor is some fairly sophisticated data structures for Mm -hmm. representing and manipulating text. So it's really based on this rope data structure, which is something that's been around, you know, quite a while. But it's a it's a pretty complicated data structure. It's like a tree. And then the tree, the the leaves of the tree hold little snippets of text. And then the nodes of the tree hold kind of summary information of some kind. And I use that to transform different ways of indexing the, the string. So, for example, there's a count of how many new lines are in there. So you want to do the correspondence of where in the string is line 1000. That's a login operation. You just traverse down the tree. You look at the uh, summary information in the nodes. So the other thing that a rope does, there's actually different choices. It's whether you want it to be a, a mutable or an immutable data structure. And I went with immutable, which in most programming languages would give you a performance hit that mm-hmm. if you want to see, for example, mutate, if you want to just insert a character in the middle of the string, which is a you know real common operation in an editor, you have to copy... Uh, you know, it's log in, but you have to copy the tree structure to make a copy so you're not disturbing right. the copy that's already there because somebody else might reference that. And if mm-hmm. you change the string out from under that, you've, you know, you've corrupted the the state of the, the whole system. So in Rust, you have this arc. Atomic reference counting. Yeah. Yeah. It's arc. It's atomic reference counter, but it's like it's a container type. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, it's, it's a cell that holds some other type. And being atomic reference counted, you can use it in threads. Now, Xi is not heavily multi-threaded yet, <laughs> but that is one of the goals. And that is actually one of the reasons why Rust is interesting, because there are these there are these libraries like uh, Crossbeam and Rayon that kind of expose uh, parallelism, concurrency at very high levels and allow you to, to exploit, you know, multi-core. And so I really wanted to enable that. I really wanted to, to, to and, and, you know, traditionally when you write text editors, you know, most of the stuff was done like 20, 30 years ago right. where having multiple, you couldn't even expect to have a multiple core. So the ARC container uh, is a reference count, which allows you to share these things and allows you to share them across threads because it's atomic. But one of the things that the uh, Rust implementation of atomic reference count, it gives you the illusion that everything that is being held is an immutable data structure. But at the same time, it has this method that says, give me a mutable reference. How can Mm -hmm. that be? And the way that it works is under the hood that if there is a single unique reference to that, so if there's nobody else that holds holds a reference to that data, and it says, here it is, do whatever you want with it. And so you can go into that tree and do no allocations, do no copying, and do that mutation. And if somebody else is holding a reference, then that get mute method causes those copies and gives you the you know kind of same performance that you would expect in a functional language. But if you if that is the only copy, if you're doing you know mutations, you know, operations in sequence inside a thread, then you're the only one that holds that. And these things, the, this arc data type just lets you go in there and and have that incredible performance. And 
you can do this in C++. No problem. I've seen implementations that <laughs> mm-hmm. do, but the chance of getting something wrong. Very high. Very high. And, you know, when you do, you're going to get corruption. You're going to get your, you know, your system is going to become unstable. And so it's, it's like, you know, when I'm programming in Rust, it's this amazing feeling. It's like I can do these things that in C++, in C++ would be considered like dangerous or, you know, mm-hmm. really living on the edge. And in Rust, it's just the standard way that you, that you implement this. Right. I think the idea I've seen batted around over the last year is this idea of programming at this level, but without fear. And I've loved that because I enjoy deeply the the low levelness and the performance and all of that that you get in AC. I've enjoyed writing C off and on. I say off and on because even though I wrote it a lot, I didn't enjoy it all of the time. But th- there's a pleasure in that and in the performance that you get out of it and everything else, even in reasoning about memory sometimes, at least if, like me, you're a little bit of a nerd that way. But that that fear all the time of, did I forget anything? Do I have a dangling pointer there? Do I have concurrent access there? A- and not having to deal with that is, yeah, it's liberating and it's fun. I, I totally agree. And my experience of Rust also, you know, people talk about how kind of difficult it is to approach and how much of a learning curve there is. Mm-hmm. Well, I got the 20 year head start on it. <laughs> you were writing ML then with memory <laughs> things. And- but, you know, I, I certainly have experienced, you know, like, oh, my God, why is the borrow checker not letting <laughs> me do this? This is right. crazy. But uh, after having done like two or three kind of medium, you know, mm-hmm. scale projects, um, you know, there there have been days that I've written over 500 lines of Rust code. And, and I think it's exactly that, you know, letting go of the fear mm-hmm. and that you're you're really using the type system. And, and, and that's really the way that I think about Rust is that, you know, that there is a cost that you do have to think. You have to be consciously aware you know, where is this memory? How is this memory actually being mm-hmm. used? Where is it going? You know, am I, am I returning a reference to something? Am I, you know, am I making a copy? Am I mutating something? You have to be aware of that. You have to, it's reflected in the types of every method you write, but you get something. Right. right. You're not just doing it for nothing. You, at the end, you, you have, you know, this really solid, trustworthy implementation, which other, other languages really, really force you to choose. You know, mm-hmm. do you want it to be performant or do you want it to be, do you want it to be safe? Yeah. And I think that's why the type system has appealed even to a lot of people coming from kind of Ruby or Python backgrounds. I've, I've seen a number of people and heard a number of people say that they went there because they got sick of dealing with, say, a Java-like type system where you're paying a pretty high cost, but you're not getting nearly the same degree of benefit. Going to something dynamically typed, you stop paying the cost and you're getting not that dissimilar. You're not quite going to get JVM level performance out of them, but you stop paying those costs. And for a lot of people, that trade-off felt worth it. And then they come and they look at something like Rust and they say, oh, I actually see the benefit I'm getting out of this type system. Yeah, I am going back to paying those costs of putting in the types up front and having to deal with a compiler that yells at me when I get it wrong. But now I'm getting a very clear benefit out of it. And I'm able to express ideas out of it that are maybe a little more sophisticated and therefore a little more helpful than I was getting out of Java five years ago or eight years ago. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, uh, you know, the the um, part of the goal of Xi Editor is to produce like really incredible performance. You know, I want it to start mm-hmm. up instant. I want it to be like the best uh, file viewer for text files. I'm you on know? board with that. 
Yeah. Because, you know, there, there's a number of editor projects. There's a lot of editors out there. And, you know, kind of why did I start Zy? I mean, this is pretty mm-hmm. crazy, right? And, uh, you know, I really felt that um, a, an editor that had rich functionality and kind of a modern look, but had at the same time that performance where, you know, it almost feels like a command line utility that everything mm-hmm. happens completely instantly. And it also scales to really large files. I mean, I use 300 megabyte, one gig files, <sighs> you know, as my test case. Right. And, you know, I won't name names, but there are some, you know, editors. <laughs> some editors like there. the one I use every day that would just <laughs> die on that. Right. It just can't handle it. Now, not everybody does that, but, you know, right. sometimes you do. You want a tool that, you know, that is just like, it's just there and just performs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I want it to have, you know, really rich functionality. And in fact, you know, I'm interested in the IDE landscape and I, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm, I want to explore, you know, the traditional IDEs like Eclipse and, uh, and um, IntelliJ and so on and so forth are these really huge monolithic pieces of software. They have modules in them, but, you know, as far as a runtime is concerned, you know, you're, you're faced with this huge um, UI with trees of, you know, incredibly confusing settings and, uh, you know, everything is, I mean, it's an integrated development environment. Right. So Zai, I think in this landscape, I'm really maybe trying to go back to a Unix philosophy and I'm actually drawing on a couple of the Unix, you know, like old school Unix techniques, um, you know, that everything is based on processes that do one thing, just like the kind of uh, Unix pipe metaphor. And then you have, you know, separations, you have one process that runs the UI, and you have another process that holds this gigabyte model and does these somewhat complex text operations on it, you know, your undo and, you know, all of these things. Uh, And then, and this is the part that's still in development. I mean, like, I have ideas, there's like, discussions on the GitHub tracker, but there's unfortunately not a whole lot of code yet. So that's kind of what I'm looking forward to between now and RustConf when I get to show this off to really looking forward to that. That's in September. Uh, Everybody come. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, that's really, I think the focus now is trying to figure out this plugin architecture so that when you have like language specific operations that you need to do, you need the syntax highlighting, you need the indentation. Ideally, you'd you'd like to run even deeper things. You'd like to run maybe an actual syntactic analysis, maybe an actual lint tool. And this is really one of the things that is drawing me towards uh, the asynchronous model. Mm -hmm. And a lot of text, you know, traditionally, and this this is also related to multi-core and so on, that if you have these processes and each one is doing a separate thing, you can exploit, you know, more parallelism. But the real motivation for having it asynchronous is that you can do these deeper operations, these analyses of the program, whatever, that might take some time. Right. And in the synchronous model, you're like, well, you only have a very limited budget. You can't do a whole lot between the time that the user presses the key and when you need to come back in the UI. So that limits what you can actually do. You can't do a syntactic analysis. You can't do a deep lint check. Basically, all you can do in that time is just run some regexes that make a pretty good guess, you know, right? <laughs> what takes a guess at your lexical structure and, and colors it. And this stuff works really well. But, you know, I also want to do the deeper stuff. Uh, running asynchronously is challenging. I mean, if the user is actually editing and, you know, now you've got a thing where you've got different versions, and you need to reconcile those. And so there's uh, that's really kind of the main thing that I'm thinking about these days. And I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of... Uh, unveiling the the results of that. I think I'm on to maybe some interesting stuff. 
But it, it certainly is a lesson that kind of just doing the simplest async thing of just running some tool and then getting the result back uh, is going to fail if you're doing this, you know, heavily concurrent type editing. Right. And uh, so I'm really I'm really interested about the possibility of making that work in a more systematic way and then enabling really rich IDE like functionality and then having the structure where people who are building these tools, you can just concentrate on the one thing you can yeah. concentrate on. Let's run a lint and then let's make these available in some way you know, to an editor without having to build this huge, massive monolithic piece of software. And I should say that a lot of the inspiration for this uh, comes from TypeScript, that the, mm. the work that they do is actually really impressive. I mean, they have incremental compilers that do, you know, a phenomenal amount of work on the program in a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then they have this JSON thing where they communicate to your editor so you can be using Sublime Text or whatever editor of your choice. You don't have to buy into this kind of right. large tool. And so that's kind of the vision. And like, it's, it's an experiment we'll see, like, you know, especially <laughs> with, I, you know, I have 20% time to work on this stuff. And, you know, I have a bunch of things that are competing for my interest. Right. But, you know, I think if these ideas are good, if, if you can actually build these kind of small tools that work together well, uh, and if I can get interest from the rest of the community, which so far has been really uh, gratifying. I mean, like within a week, of posting the original Zy announcement, I had two prototypes of a Windows and <laughs> mm -hmm. a GL-based Linux front end. And they're still rough, but, you know, that was like a sign. It's like, yes, if I build this thing yeah. and it really works and I have this philosophy of small modules that do focused things, then it seems likely that will come from the community. So I'm, I'm really excited to see where this goes. Yeah, and I've been excited to watch it develop. I'm not at a spot where I can chip in any, but... I've just been delighted to see it going. And I have a standing interest in text editing, especially for writing. So much of the landscape has seemed very focused on programming for understandable reasons. Programmers build tools for ourselves a lot. But when I'm sitting here working on projects that involve massive amounts of writing and citation and all of that. And I think that's true in a lot of the sciences and maybe even especially social sciences where you might want to be pulling on data. Someone like a Kieran Healy or somebody who's doing a lot of very public data analysis with something like R Markdown or something like that. Being able to get sort of a best of both worlds maybe even being able to build customized front ends for a very, very capable back end is the kind of thing that I think is a really neat opportunity. Having a programming text editor front end, and then maybe just a more dedicated writing front end at some point could be a really neat thing that having that decoupled philosophy might enable. And I think there's an interesting challenge in that in addition to just the hard computer science problems you're describing there of dealing with asynchrony, unprocessing text and everything else, you also just have these competing tensions and needs for what users want and shipping the same interface on Windows and Mac OS is not a happy experience for anyone. You're you're disappointing one group of user or the other or both. And so I'm just really excited to see where and how that develops. And I'm hopeful with you that it continues to because I think there's a lot of opportunities to do things well there and get performance out of it. Yeah, well, absolutely. So I mean, in terms of things like writing tools, and like, you know, especially, you know, combining Markdown, I really feel like in the free software community that Markdown uh, has a tremendous amount of potential, you know, not just in programming, but to a mm -hmm. broader audience. 
because it's simple. It's easy to work with. If you're like, you know, looking at uh, diffs in your Git, it totally makes sense. And if you have right. like some complex document format, you know, <laughs> it's just not workable. You just can't build those tools or you could build those tools, but by, you know, investing a tremendous amount of time and attention. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and then similarly, this kind of Unix philosophy about the small, you know, components, that is absolutely what that's about. It's mixing and matching yeah. rather than saying this is a one size fits all. And, you know, it might be like maybe you're a programmer and you're working on a, stru- a, a project with exactly the kind of structure that was intended, but maybe you're doing something else. Maybe you want a slightly different uh, interface. And then as far as like, you know, native UIs versus cross-platform, well, this is a huge discussion. And I think they're both ways to get to an interface. And when you have limited resources, Mm -hmm. you know, you want to look at like, you know, why am I writing this code again? It's doing exactly the same thing, (laughs) but I'm just calling different functions because it's a different platform. So I think to some extent, Zai is an experiment to say, okay, let's try splitting. It's really a model view separation, right? That you're saying this front end is not going to like know anything about handling large text. It's not going to know how to undo. It's not going to know how to do these things that are actually kind of hard problems. The Mm -hmm. only thing that it knows how to do is display the text on the screen, route your keyboard and mouse and your menus, and, you know, just handle your life cycle, you know, starting up, you know, there are things that a UI has to do. And then, yeah, you go ahead and you duplicate those. You write a completely different set of functions, whether you're on Windows, Linux, Macintosh, whatever. And you don't have to struggle with questions of like, am I at a lowest common denominator? Do I have to, you know, avoid using certain functions because they're not really well supported across this? And then you can make UI choices where it really feels like a native Macintosh app. It really feels like a native Windows app, really feels like a native Linux app, whatever that (laughs) means. Is it a native Ubuntu uh, I guess app? What that, is it a native what, Red Hat app? Is I guess it? what that means is that you can customize it completely <laughs> endlessly. <laughs> yeah. But the point is that, you know, you will make different decisions about how to present that UI. And having a different code base reduces the friction at the cost of having to, to duplicate some work. So I think, you know, it's an experiment. And I think it's something that potentially works pretty well in the Rust space. Because, mm-hmm. you know, with Rust, it's not that easy to bind to whatever your native UI is. Right. There are tools, you can do it. But it's tough. But it, it, it causes difficulty. You don't have that kind of easy development experience that that model of doing these large cross-platform GUI apps is just not something the free software community is good at. No. Whereas building small modules that can be mixed and matched and customized is something that the free software community is great at. Very good at. So let's make the, you know, let's make the tools so that, um, you know, so that it actually fits with, you know, with, with, uh, with things that we're really good at. And then you can do like version control and, you know, all these, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's kind of the, that's kind of part of the inspiration. That makes sense. (laughs) So that's been a pretty fascinating discussion so far with Rafe Levine. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed the ways it intersects rather interestingly with some of the things we were talking about in the very last episode about reference counting and memory management and everything else. For more of the same and a bit more on what Rafe is up to and then a bit about Rust in general, strengths, weaknesses, and where it'll go from here, tune in next time. Thanks very much to Chris Palmer, Daniel Collin, Rafe Levine, yes, that Rafe Levine, and Vesa Kailavirta for sponsoring the show this month. You can see a full list of sponsors in the show notes. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash neurostation or one-off contributions at any of a wide variety of places you can find on the website. You can always get in touch with me directly. 
You can find links to the things Rafe and I talked about at neurastation.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at NeuraStation or follow me there at Chris Kreitcho. And you can help others find the show by recommending it on social media, rating and reviewing it in any of the podcast app directories out there, or just by telling a friend about it. Do respond. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm sure Rafe would love to get contributions from you. So say hello in the thread for the episode on the Rust user forum or at Reddit, or send me an email at hello at neurostation.com, or just jump in and see what you can help out on on the Xi editor. Until next time, happy coding. Happy coding.